If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew back in front of you. I will be reading quite a lengthy portion of Scripture, so I'd encourage you to turn there and follow along quietly as I read aloud. Starting in verse 28 of chapter 18, we will read all the way through chapter 19 and verse 16. These are the words of God. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it about, to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, 
Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O oh God, good and gracious Heavenly Father, we praise your name today because you are worthy to be praised. We thank you for the gift of salvation in your Son and for your indwelling Spirit, whom you have imparted to us through Christ and his work for us on the cross. Give us, we pray, our daily bread. Help us to trust in your providential care for all of our needs. We thank you, Lord, for the many ways in which you have done that in our lives thus far. And ask that you would aid us in seeing all the good that we have as coming from your hand. We thank you, Lord, for the safe arrival of the Creech family. We ask that you would bless the time that they have here with us and with their friends and family. We pray as well, Lord, this morning for our country. We pray for our leaders, that they would exercise wisdom in their post, particularly that they would do so in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that their authority is not ultimately derived from man, but from you, and that one day they will give an account to you. We pray that the false ideology of secular humanism would be destroyed and that true liberty would be found in the true Savior, Jesus Christ. We also ask for justice to come for those who per perpetrate terrible atrocities against innocent victims. As we consider, Lord, some of the things that have happened in Israel this last week. We grieve for that country. We grieve for those who have been murdered. And we even think of the murders in our own country, of the hundreds of thousands of innocent babies who are slaughtered every year. As we think of Israel and all that's happening there, we ask, Lord, that you would bring Hamas to an end. We pray the same thing for Planned Parenthood. We pray that the false religion that is behind all of these movements would be exposed for what, they, what it is, what they are, that your truth would prevail. And even in all of the tragedy, Lord, we pray that you would bring about repentance 
and faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We pray that for the people of Israel, and we pray that for all who have set themselves against her. This is your world. This is your world, and let us never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Yes, this is my Father's world, and the battle is not done. For Jesus, who died, will be satisfied, and heaven and earth will be one. So we pray today that you would hasten that day. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever, and to the world's end. Amen. Well, we return today to the events that took place on the day of our Lord's death. Last week, we saw his arrest and his trial before Annas, who was still regarded at that time as the high priest, even though the Romans had long given that position to Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas. He would have still been seen as the high priest. And then after Jesus' question by Annas, John tells us that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, who would have been the acting high priest that year. We know that from the other Gospels that Jesus was then questioned by not only Caiaphas, but also the whole Jewish council, often called the Sanhedrin. That Sanhedrin, that council was was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. So when you see John talking, for example, about the chief priests, those would have been those of the Sadducee party. And then he talks about the Pharisees. And those together made up the Jewish council, which was known as the Sanhedrin. So in the other Gospels, we see that John was also put on trial by the Sanhedrin, by Caiaphas. John doesn't include that trial, but he skips to where Jesus is then led from Caiaphas' house to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor or prefect who ruled over Judea. Pontius Pilate would have been the authoritative figure in all of Judea. Now, we should ask, what do the chief priests and Pharisees, what do do the Jewish authorities hope to accomplish by taking Jesus to Pilate? What's their angle? Well, the answer is plain, and we're going to look at that this morning. That's that's really going to be the main focus this morning. We'll come back next week and we'll talk about Pilate. So our our focus is really on the Jews this morning and and what they do, why they bring him to Pilate. Well, the answer is plain. They bring Jesus to Pilate so that Pilate will do their dirty work for them. They want Pilate to put Jesus to death for them. Let's look at the text together. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death was he going to die? 
the shameful and terrible death of the cross. Remember, he said he would be lifted up, not stoned. So the priests and the, and the Pharisees, they had done their own examinations of Jesus at this point. They had their own trials, a couple of them, that really served just as a formality in their plan that they had already made. And what was that plan? Well, that plan was based on what Caiaphas had said. You remember what he had said? Caiaphas had said, it's better for this man, one man to die, Jesus, than for the whole nation to perish. So that was their plan. Their plan was to put Jesus to death. And so far, it was proceeding very well for them. But there was one small hurdle that they had to jump over yet. What was that hurdle? Well, that was that though the Jewish council did have a certain level of authority, of governance there in Judea, they didn't technically, technically have the legal authority to put someone to death, especially to put a man to death for violating Jewish beliefs and customs. Now, don't forget that, that in John, we already saw a number of times where they came very close to stoning Jesus. There's one time in particular, actually, in, in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, where it seems they would have stoned him if he didn't evade them, if he didn't escape from them. But you have to remember, they, they maybe in a, a moment of anger, they would have stoned him, but they knew that that wasn't the best, best way to go about it. Why? Because they might get in trouble with the Roman authorities for doing so. So the plan was to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate and have Pontius do the deed for them. This was the, the safest bet for maintaining their position and their good standing with Rome. And it was the surest way to put an end to this Jesus movement. Now, why? Why was it the surest way to put an end to the Jesus movement? Well, because there was nothing more shameful than to be crucified. For all people, there was nothing more shameful to be crucified. Even the Greeks, that was a shameful thing. But especially for the Jews, to be hung on a tree was to be cursed by God. That's what the Old Testament said. So for most Jews, that would have settled the case whether or not Jesus was actually their Messiah. Because in the end, when the Romans crucify him, they would look at that and they would say, he was defeated by our current enemies, our current overlords, the Romans, and he was hung on a tree. No way could he be the Messiah. That's to be cursed by God. So as soon as morning comes, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they take Jesus to Pilate. Now, Pilate normally did not live in Jerusalem. He resided in Caesarea. But because of the Passover, Pilate was in Jerusalem. And he had a headquarters in Jerusalem. And do you know why he went to Jerusalem during the Passover? He went to Jerusalem during the Passover because it was a major national holiday. And there were thousands upon thousands of Jews that traveled to Jerusalem. And he was there to make sure that national holiday, with all the national zeal that it had with it, captured within it, did not result in any sort of Jewish uprising or revolt or any disturbances. Okay, so that's why Pilate was there. And all of this, the Jews used to their advantage for their plan. But notice, did you notice this? When they get to the governor's headquarters, when they get to Pilate's house, they hand Jesus over to Pilate, but they don't enter in. Pilate ends up coming out to hear their accusation against the Lord. Why? Because they refuse to come into his, his headquarters. Now, why don't they come into this, his headquarters? Well, John actually tells us. 
it's because they don't want to defile themselves by entering into a non-Jewish home, thus rendering themselves unfit to eat the Passover. You see, it, it was, this was a matter of their code of cleanliness. And as far as I can tell, this was more of an issue of Jewish tradition than it was of Old Testament law. But either way, the irony and the hypocrisy of it all is plain. Think about, think about it. Here they are, the Jews are handing over, these religious authorities are handing over the Lord of glory, their very own Messiah and Savior, over to a pagan Roman ruler to be executed. The very Son of God come in flesh, handing him over to be executed, and their concern is that they remain ceremonially clean so that they can still observe the Passover. Now, this was the epitome of the hypocrisy that Jesus had spoken of when he said to them in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out the gnat and swallow a camel. You see, in their self-righteousness, these religious leaders deliver Jesus to Pilate to be crucified while being scrupulous to maintain their purity by not entering into Pilate's home so that they might be what they considered ceremonially clean to observe the Passover. And the irony of it all is that Jesus himself is the true Passover lamb. You remember what John told us that John the Baptist said? In the very beginning of John's gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's the irony of it all. Here's the true Passover Lamb, the one who came to fulfill the Passover and all that it pointed to. It was by His blood that the judgment of God would pass over His people. But they were blind to the truth. They were self-righteously fixed on their own adherence to the outward forms and rituals of their religion while their hearts were far from God. Jesus had addressed that as well. He had quoted in Mark 7, the prophet Isaiah speaking about their hearts being far from God while they did all these things on the outside to look pure and holy and righteous. Their hearts were far from God. So far from God that they did not even recognize God's own Son so far from God that they were willing to make false accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ in order to have him crucified by the Roman regime. And we ought to note here of the end of self-righteous hypocrisy. What does self-righteous hypocrisy lead to? It always leads to antagonism and hatred towards the Savior. As long as man thinks of himself as righteous by his commitment to outward forms and behaviors, outward forms of worship, rituals, adherence to moral code, he will never see his need of a savior. And that savior, who is the only righteous man, will become a threat to him and his supposed righteousness. Because that savior reveals our sin and our sinfulness and his cross speaks to the depravity of it all. Whenever we detect 
a creeping in of self-righteousness in our lives or a hypocritical spirit which strains the gnat and swallows the camel. We have to have fixed in our mind this picture of the religious leaders who delivered up their Messiah to be crucified while refusing to enter into Pilate's home thinking that that was what kept them clean before God. It shows us the true nature of both self-righteousness and hypocrisy. They are both ruthlessly contrary to Christ. They're anti-Christ. Now, continuing on in our narrative, John tells us that Pilate was not so quick to receive their condemnation of Jesus. They were hoping he would just take their word for it. Look, if he hadn't done a bunch of terrible things, do you think we'd bring him to you, Pilate? Take our word for it. This guy needs to die. And when Pilate says, well, you judge him by your own law then, They respond with, it's not lawful for us to deal out the death sentence. In other words, he's deserving of death, but we can't carry that out, so we need you to do it. Now, what's interesting about this this whole episode, and and the reason why I read such a large portion of Scripture here and included chapter 19 all the way through verse 16 was that in this whole episode, what you see is John actually portrays Pilate as the reluctant executioner. Now, we might not like that. It might bother us a little bit, but that's how John portrays Pilate, as the reluctant executioner. Pilate has his own trial with Jesus, and he comes and he brings him back out to the Jewish leaders, and what does he say? He says, I find no guilt in him. And then he proceeds to offer to release Jesus according to the custom that on Passover, Pilate would release for the Jews one of, their, one of the prisoners of, of their own people. And because of Nat Matthew's account, we know when Pilate says this to the chief priests and the Pharisees, it's more than just them at this point. There's a crowd of Jews that have gathered around. He offers them then to release Jesus And Matthew tells us that what the chief priests and the Pharisees do is they convince the crowd to cry out for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so then Pilate has Jesus mocked and flogged. And again, he brings him out before the Jews. It seems that Pilate thinks maybe this will appease their anger towards this man or their desire for this man to be punished. And he says again, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Presenting Jesus then in his purple robe and his crown of thorns, having been humiliated and mocked and and flogged. And this time they cry out for his blood. Crucify him, they say. And then to this, Pilate says, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For what? The third time, I find no guilt in him. And then when he says that, finally the truth comes out. What do the Jews actually have against this man? At first, when they present him to Pilate, they say, he claimed to be a king. That's why Pilate says to Jesus when he interrogates him the first time, are you indeed the king of the Jews? 
They were thinking the political angle would be the best to get Pilate to crucify Jesus. We can't tell Pilate it's just a theological issue. We can't tell him that it's on grounds of blasphemy that we want him executed. We have to make this a political issue. Finally, in verse 7 of chapter 19, it comes out. We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. In all four Gospels, this is actually the crux of the matter. This is the reason Jesus is condemned by the religious leaders. Jesus wasn't condemned by them simply because he spoke out against them or challenged the tradition of the elders or drew people to himself by his teachings and miracles. You know, all that played a part into why they hated Jesus so much. But the central concerning issue was this that he made himself out to be the son of God. Ultimately, they handed Jesus over to Pilate and they cried out for him to be crucified because they rightly, listen, they rightly understood his claim to be the Messiah and the son of God and they refused to believe it and therefore they treated him as a blasphemer and a false Messiah, not a lunatic, but a liar of the worst kind. And what's happening here at this point in John's gospel is the playing out of what John had told us from the very beginning of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 11. He, that is, the one who is the Word, who in the beginning was with God and was God, the one through whom all things were made, the one who has life in himself, who was the light of man, He came to his own, and what does John say? His own people did not receive him. As I've already mentioned, John presents Pilate as a reluctant executioner of Jesus. You know, you can think about what what John records Jesus saying to Pilate. The last thing Jesus says to Pilate is what? They're guilty of the greater sin. You see, John is presenting Pilate. He's not saying Pilate's not guilty, but he's presenting him as a reluctant executioner, giving the not guilty verdict three times, and then finally caving into the pressure. But on the other hand, John presents the Jews, and especially the chief priests as being bent on Christ's destruction. They're thirsty for his blood. And it goes from bad to worse. Because look at verse 12. This is after Pilate has his second interview with Jesus. John says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. In the end, Pilate gives in. He delivers Jesus up to be crucified. It seems they found the right, they, they found the right bush, button to push when they called into question his allegiance to Caesar. Maybe Pilate just didn't want to risk the rumor getting back to Caesar that he tolerated insurrectionists, men who were accused by their own people of opposing Caesar, and then he let those kinds of men go. But in any case, we have Pilate here as reluctant, but the Jews as willing to say whatever they needed to say to get Pilate to sentence Jesus to death. And in the end, the chief priests themselves crying out, we have no king but Caesar. Now I know at this point, some of you are thinking, this feels a bit like you're saying that John's blaming the Jews for Christ's death. And that kind of seems, I don't know, anti-Semitic. Some of you, this is your first Sunday and you're thinking, I can't believe that he's going there right now. But I, I do want to deal with this issue. I am going to go there because this is important. The New Testament doesn't teach or condone any kind of hatred or prejudice against the Jews. But there are some who would, at this point in John, raise the objection and say, this account of Christ's death is antagonistic towards the Jewish people. You can't say that the Jews were behind the death of Jesus as it seems that John is doing, placing so much guilt on them, painting them in such a terrible light and not cause people to look down on them. So we have this question, does the Christian faith based upon the apostolic witness in the gospel accounts teach or lead to a kind of anti-Semitism? That is a hatred or a disdain for the Jewish people. And especially John, because we're in John's gospel, especially John, is John anti-Jewish? I want to give you some answers to those objections or questions. And we'll close with this, and you'll, you're kind of thinking, how in the world are we going to close with this? This doesn't seem like a good way to close out a sermon. You'll see. Just trust me, you'll see. It's a good way to close out a sermon. First, so I'm going to give you a couple answers. First, John was a Jew. John, the guy writing, John was a Jew, as were the rest of the apostles and all the writers of the New Testament, and they never renounced their Jewish heritage. They never re renounced it. Jesus, get ready for this one. You might be surprised by this. Jesus was Jewish. And Jesus could not have been the Messiah if he wasn't. The Redeemer, the promised Messiah, was promised to be in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David. So John's depiction then of the Jews handing Jesus over to Pilate and the part they play in his crucifixion was not him saying, being a Jew is bad. Of course it couldn't be because the Messiah and all of his original followers were Jewish. Rather, it was to show that how even though the Messiah came to his own people, that generation as a whole rejected their own, own Messiah just as the prophet Isaiah had foretold. Remember our, our memory verse. He was despised and we, we esteemed him not. 
Israel esteemed him not. His own people esteemed him not. Now, this brings us to something else that's very important. John is not engaged in revisionist history, okay? John's giving an account of what actually happened. He's not fabricating, and this is a very important distinction. He is not fabricating a story to provoke prejudice, prejudice against a people. He's relating what actually happened in hopes of provoking faith in a person, Jesus Christ. And this was John's hope for both Jew and Gentile who read his gospel. Many of you remember towards the end of John what he says, the purpose of his letter is, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. We've read it a number of times through the series. Now, Jesus did many other things or signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, what's interesting to me about this is there are many scholars who make actually a very good case that John was primarily writing with the Jewish audience in mind. He's writing so that they might find life in the name of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, a third consideration that's important for us to understand is that when John uses the word Jew, it is in reference to both both or either Jewish authorities and Judeans. That is, Jews that lived in Judea. Okay? So when John says Jews, he's primarily referring to either Jewish authorities or he's referring to the Jews that lived in Judea. And what does this mean? Well, it means that he wasn't saying that every single Jew of that day rejected Jesus as the Messiah and called for his crucifixion. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were the primary players who incited the crowd in Jerusalem and he, who put the pressure on Pilate to execute Jesus. But in this way, you, you see, it, it's very much like the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, what do we find? We find that the religious leaders and, and civil leaders of the people spoke and acted on behalf of the people. And they would either lead the people in righteousness or in rebellion. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. And it is in this way that the Jews in Judea followed after their own leaders and their own leaders' rebellion against the Messiah and they rejected Christ. But even still, even though all that's true, we see in the Gospels, many Jews believed in Jesus and followed him during his years of ministry especially many Galilean Jews. And then more came to faith in Christ after his death, his resurrection, and ascension. Now this brings us to our final consideration. And this is perhaps the most important of all of them. The gospel, as presented by the apostolic witness, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and then he rose again. Let me say that again because I'm going to emphasize something that's really important in that. The gospel, according to the apostolic witness, is that Christ died for our sins. For our sins, according to the scriptures, 
that he was buried and he rose again. It's not that Christ died because a certain people were and are so awful, and so we're to esteem them as terrible and ourselves as better than them. In other words, the Christian message is that all men, all men, whether Jew or Gentile, fall short of the glory of God. They've made, made themselves enemies of God, and they need a savior and a mediator between them and God. Now, though it was by the initiation and promptings of hypocritical religious Jewish leaders with the crowd of Jews following along, Christ's death was also brought about by the cowardice of Pilate and at the hands of ruthless Roman soldiers. And yet the Bible tells us that behind all of their actions, all of the human actions, was a sovereign work of God. Behind all of it was God's plan that his son would come, take on flesh, live the life that we failed to live, and die for us and suffer for our sins. And this means that when we read the Gospels, especially when, look, when we read John's account, when Christians read John's account, what is our response supposed to be? Think about last week and think about what we just read this week. What is the Christian response to that? Well, I'll tell you what the Christian response is. The Christian response is this. We read about Peter denying Jesus and we say, oh man, I'm a coward just like Peter. I can see myself doing that very same thing. Saying to my Lord, I'd die. I'd die for you. I'd go to the end for you. And then when the rubber meets the road, and there are people around me who are asking me if I know him. I can see myself doing the very same thing as Peter and saying, I don't know that man. Then we get to the Jewish leaders. And they bring him to Pilate and they don't enter his household. Because they're afraid of being ceremonially unclean. What hypocrisy. What self-righteousness, and what do we say? Oh man, I've been hypocritical just like that. Oh geez, there are still times where there's a self-righteous spirit that wells up inside my heart. I'm just as guilty as them. And then we see Pilate and we go, what a wimp. Come on, man, you're in charge. You have the authority. You said the man was not guilty. Three times you said he's not guilty. And then you, you send him to the cross? You deliver him over to ruthless Roman soldiers to be brutally murdered? You coward. And we say, oh, oh Lord, save me. That same fear of man is in me. And then we look at the crowd. And what do we say when we look at the crowd? Oh, how easily they were swayed by their leaders. How easily they were swayed by popular opinion. And we go, oh Lord, I'm just like the people in that crowd. We could put it this way. The Christian message is that there's one 
good guy, and that's it. Just one. And it's Jesus. And by God's grace and mercy, every single bad guy who looks upon that good guy in faith is forgiven and is redeemed. Now, there, I, I need to say this. There really is a line that Christ himself draws. Those who listen to his voice belong to the truth, he says. And that means that those who don't listen to his voice have been deceived by a lie. But for those who have crossed over, who have listened to his voice, they've crossed over from death to life. They have crossed from lie to truth, from enemy of God to adopted by God and called his his beloved. For those people who have done that, that, there is no room for any pride whatsoever. And why? Because it's solely by his grace that we've been saved. Only because the sinless Savior died that our soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Now besides all of that, John is not bringing an indictment against all the Jews of his day and certainly not all the Jews of every subsequent generation of Jews. Whether we think of Jews today nationally, ethnically, or according to lineage, this current generation was not there. Now, I'm going to say something that might surprise you. But perhaps if they were there, many of them would have joined in the crowd and shouted, crucify him. And perhaps if you and I were there, we would have joined in the crowd and done the very same thing. And the good news is that Whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, every guilty individual that has breath in his or her lungs can be forgiven, redeemed, made right with God by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith that says, I'm a sinner and you're my savior, I'm yours, save me, wash me, lead me in the truth and in righteousness for your name's sake. And listen, this is very important. This was even true for the religious leaders of that day who called for Christ's crucifixion. Peter, if you follow up what happens after Christ's ascension, Peter proclaims the good news on Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. So it wasn't that that far removed from Christ's crucifixion. He preaches to them, the good news on Pentecost after Jesus ascended into heaven. And he says to them, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, Lord, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, what? This Jesus whom you crucified. Who's Peter talking to? Have you ever thought about this? Peter's actually talking to, right? <laughs> Peter's talking to the very men who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. He's talking to the very men and women who literally cried out, crucify him on that day that our Lord went to the cross. That's that's boldness. That is 
I think I heard at one point, that is the, the, the least seeker-sensitive sermon that has ever been pre- preached in the history of mankind. And they don't stone him. What happens? They're convicted of their sin. They're convicted of their sin of taking part in the crucifixion of our Lord. And what do they do? They ask Peter, what are we supposed to do now? And Peter responds, listen to this, it's so beautiful. Peter responds, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, every single person whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter says there's forgiveness for you. To the very men who cried out, crucify him to Pilate. To the very chief priests who delivered over their Lord, their Messiah, to Pilate to be executed. And you have to, you have to know that there were some in that crowd that day who thought to themselves, can I really be forgiven? Even forgiven for the sin of calling out for the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Is that possible? Giving him over to the Romans to be whipped and mocked and brutally slaughtered. I spit on him. And the answer was yes. Even for that. Think about what hope that gives to guilty sinners today. Free, unmerited forgiveness that knows no bounds. Flowing from the Savior to, whom, to, to all who bow before him and recognize their need for divine pardon. Let's go back to John 1.11 and we'll finish it out because I only read part of it before. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's good news. Amen. Let's pray. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Lord, this morning as we consider the awful, the gruesome, the terrible story of the crucifixion of our Lord, our response, oh God, is to say, we are guilty sinners And we are in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is a Savior for our need. We praise you and we thank you this morning that he died in our stead, that he died in our place, that he died for our sins. And we praise you and thank you for your unmerited grace and mercy that you've given to us in him. May we go from here now, being once again renewed in the joy of our salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, and amen.